the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 81, recorded Friday, March 8th, 2013. Grow a TV. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, this is episode 81. Holy cow. Quickly coming up on, uh, on episode 100. Uh, with us this week is a bunch of newbies, and I am very, very excited about that. Uh, first up is Mr. Paul Harris, the CEO and Chief Muckety Muck of Aurora Multimedia Corporation. How are you, sir? How you doing? Doing well. Thank you so much. Uh, with us also is Mr. Ron Kellis, CEO of One Firefly. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. And last and certainly not least, um, Ms. Ronnie Sprang. Uh, she's a systems engineer. How are you, ma'am? Pretty good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, this week we're going to talk about Sony, uh, Aurora, uh, which is kind of why we have the, the CEO on, Crestron, uh, and Microsoft's version of the home of the future. But first... Uh, the only the here's the thing in, in the world of AV we very rarely have anything close to what you would call breaking news, but this is as breaking as we get right. Uh, yesterday, according to Sound and Communications, Samsung is buying three percent in Sharp, and three percent doesn't sound like a lot, at least to me. You know, it's three bucks out of a hundred, but it is a lot, um, especially when you consider the fact that Samsung is a Korean company and Sharp is Japanese, uh, and the fact that they used to be. Uh, incredible rivals. So the first question is this, um, and Paul, we'll kick it off with you. When it comes to displays, one thing that that Sharp has going for it is the fact that they can make really big displays really, really inexpensively. Sanyo, the biggest one they have right now is a 75-inch LED. So is this kind of a play to make sure that they can build bigger displays maybe coming down the line? Uh, I'm not so sure if that is the case. Uh, I mean, with the, there's a lot of changes in the technology right now with the OLED push, um, which has its own set of hurdles to come still, uh, but they're making good headway from what I saw at CES. Um, if you've noticed, if you look at the 1080p displays, as they're getting larger, they're not getting better looking. They're just getting more pixelated looking. Um, so until you get more into the 4K, 2K, and that type of realm uh, for the much larger displays, I don't know if it's as much of interest to get into too large of a display just because of the way it looks. So maybe, Mr. Callis, it's the fact that Samsung is getting into a position maybe to take over Sharp? I, I think it's fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to, to see in the news in the coming days and, and weeks, uh, you know, the real reason behind the, the play. Uh, I'll be honest, it, it took me completely by surprise. I won't uh, pretend to exactly know why they did it right now. Uh, Ronnie, when it comes to technology, I mean, Paul mentioned the fact that, that you know, the OLED push and, and everything. Um, is this a, a matter of maybe Samsung <laughs> propping up one of their suppliers, maybe? 
Well, we don't know for sure all of the reasons because that wasn't disclosed. Yes. But one thing we do know is that each manufacturer does have certain edges and advantages. For example, Sharp's optical picture correction is quite a useful feature. Maybe uh, Samsung is hoping to diversify by uh, hedging their bets. You know, if Samsung's Samsung being the largest doesn't have a lot of room to grow from number one. I mean, there's not too too much uh, more to grab. So possibly by getting a little bit of, of a piece of sharp, they've got a, a hedge in case they don't continue to be the dominant player. One thing they could, you know, just start buying everybody else and, and maintain number one. Um, well, and, and <laughs> speaking of displays, and, and it, it, Paul, you mentioned this, is the fact that OLED is is a huge push. Uh, another story we have is, is also from Sound of Communications. The fact that LG is, is dumping $650 million into their eighth generation, I said eighth, OLED production line. Um, Ronnie, when it comes to OLED, is this, I mean, last year at, at, at um, CES, in, uh, CES 2012, that, this, that was supposed to be the year of, OL, of OLED, right? And, and it didn't quite pan out that way. I mean, there, there were a few out there. But is this maybe the year of the OLED? Well, there's one difference. A year ago, LG announced that they were going to make this particular product. Now, here we are a year later announcing that it's finally in production. So we don't know what transpired other than the fact that OLED is a rapidly evolving uh, technology. I mean, certainly there's uh, a lower cost of OLED, but the substrate still costs more. And so there's there's a lot to be worked out. And that and also OLED has gone from not a, a long-term durable solution to becoming more and more durable. Uh, certainly the picture quality speaks for itself and you know having a panel that is so thin and light and flexible um, it's very uh, compelling. It's something that is at some point going to take off. I, I'm not sure that the current price is quite ready for it but the longer they fine-tune and tweak it the more likely that they'll have a successful launch. Ron, do you think that that 4K will have anything, or, or what kind of effect do you think 4K will have over OLED? Well, it's it's really a matter of finding the manufacturers that are going to be producing the content. And as we get, uh, I mean, I think 4K is in our, our future and our near future, but it's really, you know, as the, the content creators are able to uh, ramp up their efforts, then we're going to have that demand from the consumer. For 2K or 4K content and beyond, I mean, we're seeing it in you know, uh, uh, you're seeing it in plasma, OLED, LEDs, projectors. I mean, the, the 4K is in our future in terms of the output, but it really the the critical thing I'm, we're looking at here at Firefly is well, what are the source content? Whether they're up conversion video processors or native 4K content producers, what what are those going to be? And as those come on the market, it it really changes the game. Well, and that's the thing is, it's, Paul, you guys do a lot when it comes to video transmission. Is that something that you guys have to contend with when it comes to your infrastructure is 4K and getting getting content to these displays, whether that be OLED or plasma or LED? Uh, it is going to be uh, an issue. The current uh, formats are not uh, supporting it uh, easily. Right now, uh, you'll see a lot of products, they require a minimum of anywhere from two to four cables to connect in order to get the extra bandwidth. So... If you're talking about, for example, CAT extenders, uh, you're looking at not just one single CAT cable carrying the data, you're looking at multiple CAT cables 
So I usually recommend to people if they're going to be doing the uh, higher resolutions at the 60 hertz, uh, res, you know, 60 hertz uh, refresh. refresh rate, that they need to uh, install more cables just to be uh, safe with it. Also, you got other issues such as the uh, HDMI connector uh, does not support the bandwidth for the 60 hertz as well. Uh, so right now, connect connectivity does require quite a few cables. Some people may look at it and go, well, we used to hook up our red, green, blue cables anyway, so it's no big difference. But part of the point of going to HDMI was that single cable solution that brought everything to you, the control, the Ethernet, the signal, all in one easy-to-connect uh, display device, or, or I'm sorry, uh, display connection. Uh, so that, that is going to be a challenge uh, just for that. And then if you look at the, uh, which is one of the other topics you're going to be heading on later with the AVB, uh, when you're talking network infrastructure, the bandwidth just is not there to support the larger uh, resolutions when you're dealing with the network infrastructure. Am I just being naive or, or is it possible then, uh, because you're talking about multiple connectors again, that we will eventually get back down to a single connector or is that just not even feasible? Well, the fun <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to jump on. We actually just working on something now, and we came across this. I mean, Crestron, they have their new 64 by 64 DM switcher, and it, in fact, is 4K ready natively. Um, I, I think it's very fascinating uh, for us in terms of designing systems for the future. Um, I don't know if you guys have any comments on that or if you've heard anything, um, you know, similar is that, products. Is that 4K at 30 hertz or is it 4K at 60 hertz? There's a I big knew difference. You ask me that question, Paul. <laughs> well, that, that, that is Paul's job. <laughs> and I would, and Ron, I would ask you this: is that yeah. is that is that and I, is that twisted pair or is that fiber? Uh, let me just. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's yeah. part of my job. Well, and yeah. that that's why I'm asking is because as as Ron looks that up, um, because you know what, Paul's right. Ten years ago. The whole idea, the whole wonder of HDMI was the fact that you've got one cable that do that does everything, right? You've got audio, you have eight, you have HD quote unquote video, regardless of you know it was 720p or 1080p or 1080i, and the wonder of it was it was a single connector, right? And even when it came to over over twisted pair, we've even gotten to the point where it's a single connector, and now with this 4K and, and eventually 8K, uh, because there are people making noise about 8K now. Um, I'm just wondering if that, tell me the answer. Yes, I'm just wondering if if maybe we can get back down to the wonder again of a single connector for 4K. Go ahead. It says they're they're able to send uh, 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 Ethernet. Uh, well, they're able to. Uh, let me just read the full statement here. DMHE handles uncompressed video beyond high definition with support for HDCP, deep color, 3D, and 4K Ultra HD. It doesn't have a refresh rate though. Yeah, they don't have the refresh. Well, I think what they're doing, based on what I see here, I'm, I'm actually online right now, uh, and Christian would obviously be the best person to absolutely answer it unless we find it in their technical specifications. But it sounds like since they're still using it with the HD Base T, HD Base T does support the uh, the, the 4K 2K, uh, but it supports it at 30 hertz. So we can do that right now as well um, with a single cable because the refresh rate uh, rate is low enough for to handle it. So. Um, it's nothing unusual. It's what HD Base T has been claiming since the beginning. They're just maybe they changed the bandwidth a little bit in their backplane to to support the, uh, um, the you know the 4K 2K. 
Well, let's get back. Let's get into HB, HD base T. Um, you guys, Paul Aurora has a new wall plate. It does a number of different things. It has VGA connectors, HDMI connectors, um, and uh, it's called the the DXW two. And there's a two E and a two EW or two EU. Sorry, um, they're all two gang. Uh, Decora wall plates. Um, it does HD base T, which is you know point to point. What um, what kind of led you guys down the HD base T, the HD base T road? See if I can say that again. Um, versus maybe AVB. Uh, well, it's not that we're doing versus AVB. Uh, everything's got its proper place in the industry. Uh, AVB has its place as well. Uh, they're two very different technologies. HD base T is great because it's point to point and it's uncompressed. Uh, if you want to, and this is targeted out there to a certain person who would correct me on this one because of uh, the fact that they manipulate the data, it's technically compressed, but not in the way we all think of it. Mm-hmm. So I just want to shout that one out there for that particular person. Uh, but uh, they they take the same data, they, they manipulate it between all the lines and they send it over. And it goes uh, uh, without any type of compression algorithm going over it to uh, keep it in real time. And it goes from point A to point B. When you're dealing with AVB, it goes over a network. Typically, people would tend to want to multicast it. It does get uh, some type of a compression over the network. uh, And the AVB keeps the timing in check uh, to make sure that lip sync is in place and all the other uh, attributes of the signal are present. And it's its advantage is that you can send one signal out to many things, whereas HD base T can't do that unless you repeat it to many locations. And it needs to be on a proprietary separate structure, whereas an AVB is over a standard network. Um, it, the, pro, the, the pro to the HD base T is if you're in a live sporting event, you're going to see it as quick as it's going to go out over the network. You do AVB, there's going to be some form of a latency. Uh, that verse a feed that might not be over the AVB at the time, and you're going to see that there's going to be a delay uh, at that moment in time. So um, th- they both have their uh, they both have their place. If you're doing large distribution where you want to keep lower cost, uh, the AVB when you're doing one signal to many can potentially be a lot less money because you're just it's just getting sent and sprayed out over the network. Whereas with an HD base T, you may need a splitter or a matrix. And then you need all the separate infrastructure specific to the HDB, uh, HD base T CAT extenders. Ronnie, when it comes to distributing uh, HD video, and, and let's get let's be honest, we're all getting to a point where we need to get farther than than the quote unquote limitation of of, of HDMI of fifty feet. Because I, I say in quotes because there's no actual documentation that it'll go X amount of feet. Um, would you rather have a, or would you feel more comfortable with the point-to-point of HD base T, or with the network of, of AVB, or does it depend on the situation? Well, it does depend on the situation. Um, I have found that networking works really good in certain applications, such as audio, where I'm trying to send a small amount of data, but I have not yet gotten into a situation where I was trying to do a large amount of video over something like an AVB, and I've never even gotten in such a situation, much less imagine wanting to. I'd have nightmares thinking about it. Um, I do support video conferencing, and I see that even in that area where we have compressed the data, we have to have enough bandwidth that's not shared, that's dedicated, that has quality of service or some manner of ensuring that we will have the amount of bandwidth that we need to throughput compressed video. 
once you start getting into uncompressed video, that is a can of worms because the, the problem with networking video is that video is streaming and each hop has latency. Each switch, each hub, each router, every single piece of gear, every cable has latency. Whenever that traffic is put out, are you going to send the traffic via what's called best effort, first come, first serve, or are you going to have uh, a type of error correction? Well, with video, whenever the time code is created, second number one follow sec you know, is followed by second two, second three, second four, each frame has a time code, and the receiving unit takes this time code and it receives packet, you know, one, two, three, four, and so on. If packet six is late, packet seven is late, packet eight is late, but they all arrive at the same time as packet nine, the receiving device cannot simultaneously stream all of them, and that results in packet loss. So networking video is a very scary and dangerous thing, even compressed. Um, that said, I've done it fairly well with uh, CobraNet and audio. I like HD Base T. I've used it. It works well. The advantage of HD Base T and similar technologies such as Crestron, um, the DM, which you know we're going to talk about soon, is that it takes an unbalanced signal via HDMI and converts it to a balanced signal, which doubles the signal strength and gives you noise resistance. You can transmit it over CAD or fiber, anything that you want, and it's really a vastly superior solution. Wow. Yeah, and, and I, that's one thing I, I have an issue with is is the whole networking and the latency issue with with AVB. That, and I still haven't seen, I still haven't seen a product yet that that does it. Um, Ron, when it comes to to video over over Twisted Pair and over over networks, um, uh, obviously you're you're a big uh, a Crestron guy. Which let's be honest, that's kind of what they're using is is HD base T. Is that what you you've put your your eggs in that basket, or do you do you have any kind of inkling of of using a network solution like AVB? Uh, we've. Uh, I, I guess you're calling me out on that, huh? Um, no, you're 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 a you're a Crestron. I mean, that, that nothing wrong with that. I like Crestron, you know. Uh, no, we're we're a pretty strong Crestron house in terms. Of, I mean, specifically in this in the, the realm of uh, uh, distribution and, and video distribution. Um, and so we we stick uh, almost entirely with uh, DM uh, type solutions. Um, and they, they work for us, they work for our clients, and, and we just like to push the easy button. I mean, they are on, the, I guess, perhaps the more costly side of the, uh, the solution or, or options, but uh, their reliability and just the strength of that, that product category for Crestron and how it's being embraced worldwide, it's, it's nothing short of stunning. So we're, we're enjoying the success of that product for you know, what it means for our clients and their projects. And we're gonna have to change your mind on that one. <laughs> I, I will let you. No, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm open to alternative ways of thinking. So I'm. Uh, I'm hey, all hey Tim, I'm gonna turn this into a sales. I, pitch. I will. I will give you guys your own room if you if you like. <laughs> take over this call and make it a sales call. At oh this point. goodness! Don't leave me out of this because I love Crestron, but I have had a number of friends who've worked with your multimedia product, and I've heard nothing but good things about it. Uh, thank you. I'll take any good compliments. No, no bad things, please. Just good things, okay? <laughs> yeah. If you have something bad to say, no need to do anything. If you have something good to say, let's hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm all for that. <laughs> um, well, let's 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 break into the Crestron thing because um, uh, 
uh, I guess about a year or so ago, uh, they started shipping something called the DMPS. And if you're not familiar with the the MPS part of that is, is it's called a multi presentation media presentation system. See if I can spit that out. Well, the DMPS is a digital media presentation system, and um, it's an all-in-one box, right? It's there's a processor in there because you know Crestron is a is a control company. There's also an a amplifier in there and a video switcher, and it does DM, which is their their version of, of HD video over twisted pair and or fiber, depends on which one you get. Uh, well, the, they here recently released a, a the 300 with AEC, Acoustic Echo Cancellation, which uh, they're marketing as a, a video conference room uh, solution. Uh, Ron, we'll kick, it off with, we'll kick, kick, kick this off with you. Um, first of all, was this is this a, a was there a problem here that they came up with? with it, they came up with a solution, or was this you know hey we need we need to put AEC in something and so we're gonna we have this product and now it's looking for a solution. Sure. No, I I, I was just actually a couple of weeks ago down in uh, Cancun at Crestron's Latin American Forum where they pull all their. I'm their, sorry, you were in Cancun on a business trip. I know it's pretty sad, Jeez. right? My, my family was enjoying the pool and the beach, and I was wearing a suit at a conference. It, it wasn't my proudest moment. Good night. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, I have to and, and so they, uh, as part of the presentation, the new product presentation, they were uh, unveiling this. And uh, I was really uh, surprised. Uh, uh, you know, Firefly, we're probably 75% residential, maybe 25% commercial. So we see a, a, a you know more luxury residential projects than, than commercial projects, and most of those are boardrooms. Um, and the the overall res, uh, receipt, the way that this product was received, was uh, very very positive. So I mean, what the majority of the work, in fact, that's going on in Latin America right now is is, is more commercial based, and it's it's growing exponentially. It's it's pretty awesome to see what's happening down there. And the, the Crestron dealers uh, were, were very favorably embracing this and, and stating that it was a problem and that this was an answer to those, those problems. I mean, in terms of the specifics, um, uh, I, the other members here probably could give you the exact uh, uh, reasons why this was a solution. I'm, I'm operating, uh, uh, I guess, perhaps these days. I'm not in the weeds of, of designing the boardroom technology systems. My designers are, so I'll defer the specifics to the other guys here. All right, well, Ronnie, you are a, a you know you you do deal with video conferencing a lot. Is what was this an issue, or did they you think they just had to inst, you know put this in there so you guys didn't have to have a secondary AEC piece? Well, the. Mo- Whenever there's a couple things in conferencing, this this gets into there's so many different things in conferencing. I'm going to be very general. Mm-hmm. Um, you have audio and video. Uh, most video conferencing codecs have their own internal AEC, um, so this is somewhat redundant. And never will you ever use both, because using both AECs causes a whole host of problems. I'm not going to elaborate on those. Um, so basically, this is a supplemental piece. Sometimes when we purchase some of the lower end devices, and there's a real trend towards lower end with bring your own device, where people may want to, let's say, go lower end with a software-based solution like a video or RadVision, um, where this could really be a valuable uh, solution. And it does open additional uh, solutions for that situation. Um, That said, I I would like to 
comment on a couple of things about the DM and the DM MPS in particular. Mm -hmm. um, the DM is a very high-end solution. It's a card cage and a lot of companies like Aurora Multimedia, uh, AMX and a number of other companies, uh, presentation systems, have card cages where you can swap input and output cards. That is a high-end solution and digital media started with that. The MPS is the low end, and these don't have the card cages. They are an economy solution. Um, and I only point that out because the economy solution uh, is, because it's more economical, more econ uh, less expensive, tends to be the default that a lot of companies go to. Where with this, this is really more for a cookie cutter, a hang and bang, simple, basic little room. However, when you look at the specs, of the DMMPS, you realize that this is a very good quality uh, economy solution. They have really put uh, specifications and uh, capabilities into this that are reflective of really far better equipment. And the echo cancellation itself is also pretty good. Um, so I looked this over and I said, you know, the MPS does fit a certain niche. And all they have done is they've added one more optional feature to make it more compelling in certain situations. And that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I the the one thing that I had an issue with with the AEC was what you mentioned at the very beginning was the fact that most <laughs> conferencing systems already have that. So that's why I was a little confused by it. So, but what if that circuit fails, or if somebody wants to use a lower end solution that may not have a very good AEC in it? That's true, and so you disable that in in the uh, in that. So I understand. Um, one thing, uh, Ron. Actually, we'll come back to you on this. Is this kind of Crestron's? Uh, Ronnie mentioned the fact that it's a lower end, right? A uh, digital solution. Is this more of their? Everybody's in, into customer service now. I mean, everybody in their product line is everybody from. I mean, they they changed the name of their capes, which is the Crestron. Uh, authorized independent programmers to Crestron service, service providers? That's right. So everybody's in customer service now, right? Well, it, the, the change in their, the name really reflects that the, 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 you know, these, these contractors, these businesses that are, are supporting the industry, supporting integrators and supporting Crestron are doing far more today than just programming. They're, they're consulting, they're designing, they're uh, uh, in some cases commissioning. They're they are programming. They're configuring, and so the 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 name change is really reflective of the all encompassing. If you look at the description now of the CSPs, there's probably you know 10 to 15 bullets on the services CSPs are are providing to the marketplace, and and Crestron at the same time is is trying to uh, raise the bar. In Firefly, under one Firefly, we have a division called Firefly Programming, and Firefly Programming is a CSP. And um, they put some rules in place, which are, I think are going to help the industry at large. Uh, primarily, uh, the requiring uh, of uh, scope of works for any project that they take on uh, with a customer. So if they're working for an ESC, an electronic systems contractor, it is required now, and in fact mandatory, that the CSP create a, a written scope of work that is signed off and approved by the ESC um, with both scope, uh, term, the financial terms, and delivery terms 
all outlined. And uh, that has to be in place for every job and for every change order. And in fact, if it isn't, uh, if someone calls in for technical support and it was programmed by a CSP or if a CSP calls in, they are, they are being asked for their scope, their approved scope. And if they can't provide it once, they'll be kicked out of the program for 30 days. And if they can't provide it twice, they're disbarred from the program. Wow. So it is, I think, a very powerful statement from Crestron um, as to the industry at large and specifically the, the third-party programming community needs to raise its level of service to the contractor. And that demonstration of a scope and, you know, a scope tied to a, uh, a price, that should then be passed on to the consumer. Um, whether that's a commercial customer or a residential customer. So they know, in fact, exactly what they're buying for X amount of dollars. Um, I think it protects all parties. Um, it protects the contractor because when, when this, the project changes, and inevitably they, they change a lot, you know, definitely in the residential space, um, then it enables all the parties to go back to redefine what the, the new needs are and uh, put a price on that and everyone you know, is covered. All right, so Paul, I'm not going to ask you specifically about the the CPS, but actually, I could answer. Okay, go ahead. That. Well, just in general, I mean, obviously, we have a different philosophy than Crestron's approach to it. Don't get me wrong; what they're doing is good for for their network and and the programs that they're that they're providing. We've been always under the premise of of kind of just do what the world where the world is directing towards it, which is more towards the non proprietary element, um, the, the type of things where you're doing the scope that's been around forever I mean over 20 years ago we, we were defining scopes even back then uh, it was really more of just how the dealership itself was set up and if they were properly uh, more or less just outlining what the programming was showing uh, this is what the flow of the touch panel is going to look like this is what the expectation of the code itself is going to do and how it's going to control it and then to show it to the end user and then have the end user sign off on it um, there really hasn't been anything so new. Um, now, in this case, they're, they're obviously building it into their program itself as being a criteria, but it's built into a program where it's with a very specialized programming set, not something that you would just normally have as an open industry standard. Uh, right now, you can't uh, even touch a Crestron system. And now, granted, even though they're a competitor of ours, we would have no problem writing code and driver libraries and things of that nature for Crestron, but we're not allowed to. Uh, because we're obviously a competitor and for whatever reason they just will not allow us to do that. Um, but um, the, uh, we just tend to go with the fact of a little bit more flexibility in the industry allowing choices to be made. So let me ask you guys this, and, and this is a general question. Um, I, I know a fair number of programmers, I know a fair number of, of sales executives and, and design build guys, there are some of them who shouldn't be in customer service. I, and I'm just, I'm not being hateful. They're, they're wonderful gentlemen, but they just should not, they have no business being, um, having the, the, a, a service provider tag after their name. They're programmers, right? They're, they, they love the computers, they love their control protocols, and they love all that. And some of them have no desire to uh, be uh, service providers. <laughs> so let me ask you this: In general, and I'm not I'm not picking on Crestron or, or anybody else. Should should they be forced to be service providers? 
can I comment to that? Sure. So the, the, the programming, you know, the AMXs and the Crestrons and, and these, these uh, controlled technologies that, you know, have a proprietary programming language, um, in order for the marketplace to grow, uh, it was deemed necessary, call it the late 90s, early 2000s, that this whole this category of business was created of these outsourced programming firms. Um, just because, frankly, there weren't enough uh, trained personnel at that level on staff at the, the integration firms and, and or they, they, someone was trained on staff and they left and they set up their own enterprise. Um, the reality is the, a lot of these companies are really poorly run entities. They're, they're one or two or three man shops and their focus is on the, the technician side of it. You know, to use an e-myth concept, you know, they're the technician, they're the, maybe the great uh, programmer but it doesn't mean that they, they, they are well-rounded in terms of all the other skill sets they need to have to run a, a, a good business, a, a good service-based business. And um, I think the industry has suffered as a result. You know, programming at large uh, doesn't have the best name because a lot of businesses, it's, it's, uh, it's the lesser of two evils. They have to hire the outsourced programmer, but uh, they hate dealing with them. And uh, they, they hate dealing with them because a lot of times those, those folks retain the source code. A lot of times they aren't clear in terms of defining to the, the integrator what uh, they're going to be delivering and on what time frame. And uh, when things change, then there was no clear definition of exactly what they would have been delivering. So the delineation of where the change starts and where the original order ended is very fuzzy. And so what, what Crestron's doing, I, I can't uh, uh, predict that it'll solve the problem, but I think it's a step in the right direction, is to at least say that, that uh, being a better business matters. And they're trying to give uh, their, their programming, uh, you know, the, the CSPs, some guidelines to follow. And so I, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think uh, the, the integrator's better for it. I think ultimately the end customer's better for it because they're guaranteed to have a clear definition of what they're getting uh, for X price. And although it's a concept that's been around as long as man's been alive, I can tell you as a rule, it, it happens far less often in our space than it should. Well, actually, I, I do want to add something to that. And it might be more of where it needs to be solved from. Um, I, I was just recently, as a matter of fact, at uh, an Infocom roundtable event. And this kind of this this type of a question really falls into an organizational thing where it encompasses all manufacturers, not just one specific manufacturer. So this would be maybe something if it hasn't already been brought up to. This would be more of something of an Infocom organization type of uh, question, where uh, some type of certification or structure or documentation could be made where everybody could benefit from it. Where whether it's ourselves, Crestron, AMX, Extron, any, anybody who's out there, uh, that there's something from an organizational level, just like an IEEE specification. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these type of things to improve the industry need a leader of the industry. And that's one thing when you look at something like an Infocom, that one of their positions that they've tried to take aside from just doing trade shows is implementing different types of um, um, uh, j just basically different type of uh, rules and regulations that can be applied to the industry or things to follow to make it a better industry. So this might be one of those things that really should come from an organization. So I completely so agree, Paul. And I just want to add one, one comment is, is the, the commercial space in the Infocom world 
uh, generally operate uh, uh, with a little more sophistication than uh, I'll say the CDA channel, the residential channel of, of integrators. I, I think the the commercial integrator in that whole uh, industry has been around for a couple decades longer, really, than the residential side of things. And a lot of that work is specification led. You know, I, I've heard different numbers. Let's call it maybe 50% of that specification led. So there's actually a lot of the framework for project scope within a specification. Um, in the in the residential world, it's it's 99.99% design build led by the contractor, and it's really up to them to have some type of scope, uh, written scope beyond a parts list for their customer. And it really uh, it generally doesn't happen. And it ha if it happens, it's a very small percentage. And so. Uh, the, the main component of the user experience is the program system, the end result. And um, I, I think it would be awesome if, if all the control system companies demanded that of their, their both their contractors and the service providers supporting them, because ultimately it improves the end customer experience. They know what they're buying. And there's nothing more frustrating than, than them you know, thinking they're getting one thing and then ultimately getting something else. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if I can agree that it's best for a manufacturer to try to uh, see. There's two sides to this. On one side, Crestron wants to have their name represented with a certain standard, but on the other side, you know, the the dealer and the integrator is in business for themselves, and each person that works there is in, also in sense in business for themselves. There's an organizational and an individual level to this. On one hand. Some people are really excel. I, I remember earlier in this, and I'm kind of digressing a bit, um, where we had mentioned should the programmer be good at customer service. Some people, like myself, I got into technology because I'd rather talk to machines than people. If I tell a machine, switch to this input, go to that channel, it just does it. When I tell a person, hey, go put this equipment on that channel, they may or may not do it. So I don't consider myself much of a people person. But at the same time, I have to intera interact with a customer because without that customer, I have no business I, or purpose or job. So as an individual, I have to do both, and I recognize that. But not everybody does. You've got people who are autistic or, or exceptional in one area and lacking in another. So the organization has to step in and say, look, we've got a superstar programmer who's totally antisocial, we need to put a person buffer between them and the customer. That becomes an organization's responsibility. The real question here is, at what point does the manufacturer overstep their bounds telling the integrator how to run their business? Well, in this case, they're not actually putting that rule to the integrator. They're putting it to these uh, cert certified programmers, these CSP, certified programmers. Uh, 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 Crestron service providers. And it's really an organizational, an organizational uh, requirement, not a personal requirement. I, I completely agree with you. Some designers and programmers are best, best left to their computer and not left to, you know, interacting on a, on a customer service component for the end customer or the client. But the organization is, is the entity that has the certification and the authorization to be listed as uh, a firm, a business that can be hired by ESCs worldwide for programming, and I think it's uh, it's just a it's a really smart step that they've now required the programmers to actually tell the ESC what they're going to be buying and on what payment terms. And I, I think a next step should be that they tell the contractor the same thing. 
because I, I think it's fair to the end customer. I can't tell you how many end customers I've met that, that were promised one thing and delivered something else. And when I, I can say, well, where was where's the written definition of what you were told would happen? It, it doesn't exist. Yeah, but that's and I and I, I agree with you as well. But both of you obviously all agreeing with each other. Um, but as a manufacturer, believe it or not, I, I do I do firmly believe in the chain of commands or the food chain, as a lot of people like to call it, where people have their place. And even though as much as manufacturers would love to try to have their stranglehold on everything, the reality of it is, you know, it's capitalism at its best. There are certain things that you want to see a lot of good competition, but there's certain elements that can be generalized, such as the way the, the business is structured, the way things are, is done. So in the case of programming, there are certain things that can from an organization when you, especially when you're talking like a structure like that, that kind of encompasses any brand when you're talking things like that. Um, where do they really need to go through it multiple times for every single manufacturer? It becomes very counterproductive, uh, and it also makes it harder to grow and look at other alternatives out there from other manufacturers, whereas certain things that encompass a, a generalized thing, if it comes from an organization, it means that they have a certain capability as a base foundation versus something that's very specific. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Are they to get certified from both Crestron, from Crestron, from AMX, from Aurora, from Extron, every single time to just repeat what they've already done or have the capability of doing once within the organization itself? It starts to become counterproductive or it becomes a, a weight which they don't want to start looking at other alternatives and they get fixated because they've already spent their time and investment into one particular solution. So that's kind of where you'll see more of those benefits come into play from an organizational role is it frees up the choices. It, it, it just simply ma it just makes things more simplistic. Well, I, I think we already see what happens to the, to, to the programming firms if they're left to their own methods and processes. And that is that very few, if any of them, actually commit in writing uh, to their ESC client what they're buying or what they're selling. That's just if look at the marketplace today, how many of the programming firms do it? Very few. I know most of the ones that I know, and I know quite a few of them, uh, give uh, no scope or only a very uh, slim fragment of a scope. And I, I think that it, it, w the concept of a scope for a job is an all-encompassing of all brands. It's not a Crestron thing or an AMX thing. It's just a really good idea. Yeah, it is. All that Crestron is saying is that if you're – if you want to wear this badge as a service provider for us, then we want you to tell your, your ESC customers what they're buying and on what price and what payment terms. If you don't want to do that, that's okay. You just can't be, you can't say that you're a CSP. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it's perhaps conference, uh, uh, controversial. I, I really never saw it as such, but I, I, my opinion and as one, and, and, and I, I think it's a great thing for the business. For the industry, it, it is. And here's the thing: Any, anything that you can do to, to better the customer experience, I think, is a good idea. Um, real quick, to to, to, to clarify uh, what Ron was saying, an ESC is an is a uh, what was it again? Electronic Systems Contract. Thank you. It's the new. It's, uh, it's the new Cedia thing. It's yeah. It's I guess it's it's uh, yeah. Just a, a short acronym for referring to the contractor. As this industry SP. loves acronyms. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I, I came up with a with a, a logo for a, a mascot for you Eskies a couple years ago. So, if, if, if you've ever seen Return of the Jedi, think of an Ewok with like a you know a pocket protector. So, 
<laughs> you're listening to AV Week. Now that I ticked off all my resi guys. Uh, you're listening to AV Week. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Paul Harris is here, CEO of Aurora Multimedia. Ron Callis, CEO of One Firefly. And Ronnie Spang is CEO of her own world. She's a systems engineer. Um, this comes to us from Slashdot by way of Panic Blog. Panic Blog tied into, or tore into rather, the new Lightning Digital AV Adapter from Apple. Uh, it's the one that is converts the, the Apple um, iPhone 5 as well as the mini, um, the mini iPad, or the iPad mini to be correct. And it shoots it out over, over HDMI. What they did was they, they tore into it and they found an ARM processor and they are positing that Apple is really just using this as they're, they're, they're shooting an airplay down about three or four inches the length of the cable. Um, so, Paul, we'll start with you on this. Are we getting to the point where, uh, if if this is true and if this is happening and Panic Blog is correct, um, how soon do you think we're going to see, or are we going to see, uh, an AirPlay quote unquote dongle that I can throw into a display and just do away with all this cabling stuff? Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. Everybody likes to. Everybody thought the. Um was it Thunderbolt was going to mm -hmm. really take over, and you can see it really hasn't. It's a great technology. Um, everybody thought DisplayPort was going to be doing. They're still they're still thinking that it's going to have a very big impact. Uh, I've seen stats saying that it's going to uh, continue to grow even at a faster rate than HDMI, and yet it still hasn't really taken off that way yet. Not to say that none of these technologies will at some point, but uh, I think we all know that the people with the most marketing budget usually wins, uh, and right now. Uh, I think if you look at a lot of the displays out there, I think they're kind of getting happy that they finally just have something that's just easy to build and throw in there. Uh, I just bought a display yesterday, and it had two HDMIs on it, and it had uh, it was a small display, it's 32 inch. It had uh, two HDMIs on it, and believe it or not, it had one VGA, one composite, and the VGA shared the component and had one set of analog that you had to choose for the stereo audio input for all the channels. Wow. So you can see they're really focusing right now on the HDMI when you go to the store these days. Yeah, but you only have two HDMI's. So you need more than that. You need a switcher. <laughs> you you need to find somebody you know that has a switcher company and, you know, get something. I, I, I wouldn't know where to get one of those. I tell yeah. You. Um, Ronnie, are, do you, do you, <laughs> I, and I, I'm all about, I, I do, I, I personally like AirPlay. I think it's a neat, it's a neat technology. Uh, and that's kind of what kind of drew me to this, this, uh, this story. Ronnie, do you think that we will get to the point where, you know, we can have a dongle maybe that, that instantly changes things to, to AirPlay and I can shoot the, the iPad signal or, or my iPhone signal or even the Mac display signal? It's a matter of time. I mean, we know this is coming. We just don't know when. No. Uh, Ron, is it, do you think that this is coming like, like, uh, like Ronnie said? Just it depends on, on how long. Yeah, I would say it's inevitable, and it's just um, you know trying to predict uh, at the speed at which things that we uh, you know one day say would never be possible. It's really only a matter of time, whether it's months or or a couple of years. But I'd say yeah, it's it's inevitable. Okay. Well, By the way, Tim, yes. this, this is yes. one one thing that I do want to point out on here. Shoot. I mean, Apple makes obviously great products. There's there's, there's no denying it. They do. Um, but one thing that I've seen in their history is they like to lock everything down. And if you look at some of the stats that have been going on lately, I mean, look at the Samsung S3 over the iPhone. That thing just kind of took over the whole market. And now the S4 is coming out. And my, my point is that 
in, if you look at the history of Apple, they have a habit of holding on to technology a little too long where the mm -hmm. rest of the world reacts to it, makes a competing technology such as uh, Android as an example, which, um, you know, I as a manufacturer, I could put Android into any one of my products if I choose to do so and work with the operating system. So you can find it in refrigerators, you can find it in control systems if you want, uh, touch panels, you name it, you can put Android in anything you want. You can't do that with the Apple iOS. Uh, it's really if they want to make something. So it does kind of have a limiting factor in it that, uh, you know, it can only go so far. I mean, even just recently, they announced that kids no longer think the Apple iPhones are the coolest thing on the block because now parents have it. Yeah. So there's a delicate balance that you see all the time. Uh, could it end up in products? Yes, but there's a delicate balance where if you hold on to a technology and you lock it down too long that you won't find it. And that's maybe where I'm going with this is I was hopeful that maybe um, that maybe Mr. Cook would be a little bit less tight on the reins than, than Steve Jobs was. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just dreaming. You know, I hope so. I, I wish I had, a, had access to an iOS OS. I, yeah. I mean, it would, it would be beautiful to be able to make devices that I could more tightly integrate with their stuff, but it's just not allowed. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I don't comment more whenever we talk Apple because it's so limited. I get frustrated with it. I always go back to Windows. I'm used to being able to do anything I can imagine. I, I look at the iOS as something I would give to a child to learn a computer on before they graduated to a you know a Windows computer because the iOS is so locked down and limited. Um, certainly, it's getting better and improving, um, but you know it's not an advanced uh, technology. Speaking of, of Windows and, and, and Microsoft, uh, this comes to us from BBC. Uh, inside Microsoft's House of the Future. I wish I had, had like, echo. Um, here's the thing. It's, it's a video that the BBC went through, and, and, and it's, it's, it's in Microsoft. It's out in, in, in Washington. And it, it has displays, and it has a Kinect scanner. Um, I like to cook a lot, so the, the kitchen thing really kind of got to me. There's one on the wall that you can hold up a piece of, uh, of, of food, you know, and, and it'll give you a bunch of, of recipes. And then there's one over uh, over the actual kitchen counter. Uh, it's a display and a, and a projector. Um, Ron, we'll start with you on this. How close do you think were they? Well, while we're on the subject of this, I looked at it. It seems a little primitive. Um the hand gesture thing, the same reason why voice controls aren't more common yet is because we'll accidentally say words that'll trigger things. And so it's the same thing with gestures, where they're doing a lot of gestures. I like the idea of holding stuff up next to the wall and having it recognized. And I do think that as OLEDs uh, get less expensive, they are cheap to grow, and at some point the substrate will become less expensive. I do recall uh, someone experimenting with OLED paint. And so I had the vision years ago of, oh, well, our house is going to become a display. Um, we'll be able to put a display anywhere that we feel like painting one. So as I was watching this, I saw, wow. <laughs> Um, as, as I was watching this, I saw some things that I thought were primitive, and I saw some things that I thought were insightful. So, we, so we're going to be able to grow our, grow our own TVs and paint them on the walls? Absolutely. Well, Yay. down the road at some point. You should, you should patent that now, Ronnie. Well, no, no. The OLED organic LED, it's actually organic material that's pressed into thin films. OLED is nothing but thin film transistors. See, that's that's really cool. I was I was talking about the the painting part though. So 
Well, no, somebody I... else came out with that idea already. Oh, That's well, not my then. idea. Never mind then. Uh, don't then don't patent it. Um, Paul, maybe it'll be wallpaper. That that would be cool. Um, Paul, do you think they're they're fairly close to this, or we're fa fairly close to this at uh, the side uh, of the future? You know, uh, they've been talking about the House of the Future since I think the fifties, um, and they, someone even made a mock up of it as well. The, the biggest problem with the House of the Future um, is it's not course practical to the average person. It's not that it's not unachievable for the technology. I mean, it's funny, I was just bringing up the S4 before, and one of the, the features that are talked about as a possibility of being in the phone is eye gesture uh, and head movement, where they, it looks at your eye, the camera's looking at your eye gestures, and if you move your eyes down, it's going to scroll the page for you. Uh, and if you move your head away, it will automatically pause. So there are, there are technologies that are out there already that can do very similar gesture type of technologies and things like that. The hardest part is who can afford to put it in their house right now yeah. as, as the house of the future norm? And the answer is not many. It's the, the cost of installation and the equipment itself far outweigh the need. I, I mean, I, I, I'm a technology buff myself, and I still use a plain old IR remote to change my channel on my TV set. God love and you. I own, and I own a control system. <laughs> I was going to say, God love you. All right. What did you say you use again? What is this thing? It's a it's 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 a, it's a step above a rock that he throws at the TV. Uh, as long as enough to get up and push the button on the TV, I'm that, good. That's why you have kids. I mean, uh, Ron. <laughs> at least that's what my yeah. dad used to tell me. Ron, how close is this is this video to uh, to reality here? I, I think a couple of points. I mean, the cost of technology is. Uh, is is dropping uh, exponentially, and with a, a lot of the new, you know, the uh, at CEDIA this past year we had Mishu Kaku, the uh, the physics professor at New York University, spoke, and he he gave a presentation regarding, you know, Moore's law, and the you know there was one concept that it might be stalling, um, in terms of the because you can't fit but so many transistors on a piece of silicon. But then there's been new new inventions such as carbon nanotubes and such, which now immediately open the world of opportunities to continue shrinking technology and processing capability on smaller and smaller um, you know, materials, which hence makes the cost of microchips and computers continue to drop into the foreseeable future. Um, and so I think everything you're seeing here, we're, we'll look at it in 10 years and we'll laugh because it'll be comically archaic. Um, but I, I think the concept of your wall or your windows or your refrigerator or your countertop being interactive smart surfaces is, is completely real. And um, I mean, we, we do it for the, the wealthy today, um, those that can afford um, technology. You know, I, I just left a job site this morning. It was 44,000 square foot construction site, and the customer can have whatever he wants. Yeah. And so we're giving it to him. Um, but in terms of the masses, uh, it's, it's, it's not even remotely within reach right now. But, you know, I think if we look at how far we've come just in 10 years and then look another 10 or 20 years forward, I think uh, everything in that video looks will look like child's play. Yeah, and I tend to agree with that. You know, I, I don't think we're, I think Paul's right. It's not here right now, but but you're right, Ron. In, in, in 10, 12 years, it, it may be commonplace. So. 
All right, guys, that's going to do it uh, for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. With this has been Ronnie Spang, a systems engineer. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, also with us is Ron Callis. He is the CEO of One Firefly. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Uh, and last but not least, Mr. Paul Harris, CEO of Aurora Multimedia Corporation. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Tim Albright. Um, uh, you can reach us at avnation.tv, avnation.tv. You'll find this podcast as well as so many others. We actually, uh, Ron and and and, uh, and actually all three of you guys, uh, we have a, a new uh, control systems uh, podcast we started uh, called uh, Assist- a State of Control. So check that out. Uh, we also have an education one. And a live uh, staging one, social media, and other ones like that. So check out the website, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. That's all the time we have for AV Week.